Movie Queers, where personal stories are embedded in film history. Hello everybody and welcome to the last episode of Movie Queers this year. To do a proper farewell to this 2022, we are going to talk, maybe for the first time, about a movie that everybody knows. And I'm sure that if I warned you with a... Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. You know immediately the movie that we are talking about. We are talking about, of course, all about Eve. You all know all about Eve. What can there be to know that you don't know? All About Eve is a classic for several reasons. First, because it is a movie by Joseph Leo Mankiewicz. He was one of the finest and more sophisticated directors in the Golden Age. Second, it is still the movie with more Oscar nominations ever, 14. The record was set in 1950, and it is shared now with Titanic and La La Land. All About Eve ended up winning six awards, but most of all, All About Eve is a classic because of her. So many people know me. I wish I did. I wish someone would tell me about me. You're Margot. Just Margot. What is that? Besides something spelled out in light bulbs, I mean. Betty Davis became Margot Channing, and she was not only one of her most famous roles, but also her emancipation from Warner Brothers and the beginning of the end of the abusive conditions that the big studios imposed on their stars during the 40s. It's about time the piano realized... It has not written a concerto. This movie is, after all, an actor's movie, the triumph of the artists over the producers. All About Eve was also kind of a revenge from Hollywood against Broadway, trying to prove that their scripts could be as intellectual as their plays. The theater, the theater. What book of rules says the theater exists only within some ugly buildings crowded into one square mile of New York City? And Margot Channing is actually a veteran theater diva that starts feeling insecure and threatened when a humble girl called Eve Harrington comes into his life, first as a fan, then as an assistant, and finally as a rival. As it happens, there are particular aspects of my life to which I would like to maintain sole and exclusive rights and privileges. For instance, what? For instance, you. Nevertheless, for Paolo, our interviewee today, this movie was a kind of epiphany that happened when he was sick in bed and suddenly he heard this score. I think I was in high school and I was homesick. And uh, it was in the mid-afternoon and I put on the television to see what was on and All About Eve happened to be on. And I got interested in it. So... And I was intrigued by the acting and, and the dialogue. And also, uh, in my mind, being high school, it depicted these sophisticated people living in Manhattan and with the theater and all these artistic adventures. And it was something that I said, oh, maybe one day I could be like that, you know, all these kind of wishes. And that's the first time I saw it. I was an only child. Used to make believe a lot when I was a kid. Acted out all sorts of things. What they were isn't important. But somehow, acting and make-believe began to fill up my life more and more. It got so I couldn't tell the real from the unreal. Except that the unreal seemed more real to me. Then, in college, 
I watched it again. And every time I watched it, I discovered something new about it. The dialogue, the acting, the plot, and, and, and so on and so forth. And then with, when I met other gay people who were also intrigued about it, I watched it even more <laughs> until I became a, a fan. And it's probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite movie. Those little beasts that run around in packs like coyotes. They're your fans, your audience. They're nobody's fans. They're juvenile delinquents. They're mental defective. They're nobody's audience. I think it's two things, or two, maybe even three things. I mean, the, the serious one is the, the script, the, the quality of the script, the sophistication of the, of the script. A great actress at the peak of her career. You have every reason for happiness. Except happiness. Every reason. But due to some strange, uncontrollable, unconscious drive, you permit the slightest action of a kid like... A kid. Of a kid like Eve to turn you into an hysterical, screaming harpy. Now, once and for all, stop it. And on the negative side, or the funny side, you can say the bitchiness and the underhandedness that's in it, you know. A lot of gay people love that kind of thing, you know. You have a point. An idiotic one, but a point. I don't want to make trouble. All I want is a drink. But, I mean, we're talking with other gay people. Everybody loves to accentuate the bitchy lines from the movie, you know, and then we all start laughing about it. But I think most gay people like the theater, they like the serious ofness, and they like the uh, intelligence of the script. Infants behave the way I do, you know. They carry on and misbehave. They'd get drunk if they knew how, when they can't have what they want, when they feel unwanted or insecure or unloved. In fact, there's even a very witty line in the movie where uh, her boyfriend, Bill Sampson, played by Gary Merrill, was going to be going to Hollywood to make a movie for Zanuck. And she goes, Zanuck, 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 what are you two lovers? Zanuck, 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 what are you two lovers? Only in some ways, you're pretty. And apparently it passed the censors, you know, two men impl implying lovers. So that's one, a, a big line from the movie that a lot of gay people find amusing. And we would try to outbitch one another. Who could say, who could pick what line from the movie that, that was, you know. Well, the one I liked that was actually, that I could identify is when Eve Harrington starts the conversation with Celeste Holm there in the powder room. And she goes, I've, I've always considered, considered myself a, very a clever girl. girl. Smart. Good, Good head, head on, on her shoulders. shoulders. Never, never the, the wrong, wrong word, word at the wrong time. But then Until I never I met, met Addison, Addison DeWitt. DeWitt. Yes, and to some extent, there are people like that, and not just in the theater, and even in all professions. Cunning, and they try to use people and deceive people, and they're not true. But on the other hand, that was her survival tactic, and it worked for her. But then in the end, you see history repeating itself with Phoebe, you know, and is she really that happy with all that she's achieved? So, but it's also, if you look at it from a, like a, an economic thing, she got herself out of the working class where she would have been a secretary in a brewery. When you're a secretary in a brewery, it's pretty hard to make believe you're anything else. Everything is beer. And she became rich and famous from it. So, but she wasn't sincere to the people. But in the movie, in the, when you see when she's giving her acceptance speech, she says... I must, I must give, give credit, credit where, where credit, credit is, is due. So if there's anything uh, that she did that was uh, decent, she thanked Betty Davis, uh, Margot Channing character, she, Celeste Holm, uh, Gary Merrill, uh, Marlowe. But the one person she doesn't thank 
who was the most instrumental was um, Addison DeWitt. My name is Addison DeWitt. My native habitat is the theater. In it, I toil not, neither do I spin. I am a critic and commentator. I am essential to the theater. He's the most intriguing. He's not my favorite character in the movie. But he outwitted Eve Harrington. She thought she could deceive even him. And then you have Delma Ritter, who plays like the working class Brooklyn person, you know. But she's the first one that has the insight into the truth uh, that Eve Harrington was a phony, so to speak. Everybody else was believing her and taking her at face value. But Delma Ritter saw through her right away. Bertie, hmm? you don't like Eve, do you? You want an argument or an answer? An answer. No. Why not? Now you want an argument. She works hard. Night and day. She's loyal and efficient. Like an agent with only one client. She thinks only of me, doesn't she? Well, let's say she thinks only about you anyway. How do you mean that? I'll tell you how. Like, like she's studying you. Like it was a play or a book or a set of blueprints. Yeah, the Brooklyn I grew up in, in a working class part of Brooklyn. Yeah, I guess if I lived in Brooklyn Heights, you know, <laughs> which was she-she even back then, maybe it would have been a different story. But when I was growing up in the late 50s, early 60s, you still had neighborhood movies. And they were trying to to uh, combat TV. That every... So I remember my mother and all the other women that lived on, on the block would go once a week to the neighborhood movie and they would give them free plates and cups and saucers and things. And they went to see whatever movie was playing just to get the, the freebie gifts and stuff. And then on Saturday matinees, they had it for children. And I would go with some of my cousins or other other children on the block, and we'd go to, to the movies to see that. And then my family liked movies, so uh, in the evenings, they would watch the Million Dollar Movie, I remember, was every day they had a movie. And the late show, the early show, and I would sit and watch the movies with uh, my parents, my aunts and uncles. Everybody lived in the same apartment house. And I would listen to what they had to say and how they looked at it. Yeah, always had a fascination with the movies. Well, lots of actresses come from Brooklyn. Barbara Stanwyck and Susan Hayward. Of course, they're just movie stars. You're going to Hollywood, aren't you? And when I was in high school and we had to read, like, from Shakespeare and, and other plays, they would always pick me because I guess I just liked speaking. And I remember one uh, one other gal in the class, They were the teacher wanted to know who could speak the male part, and they go, oh, Paul can do it. When I heard Mr. Fabian tell Miss Channing that her understudy was going to have a baby and, and they'd have to replace her. And you want to be Margaret's new understudy? I don't let myself think about it even. But I do know the part so well and every bit of the staging. Well, I had to do that for my job as well, yes. I was trained to be a teacher and then I was a manager with the Social Security and uh, I had to give presentations to the public and to other elements in the government, you know, so. How'd you get up here from Brooklyn? Subway. How long does it take? Oh, with changing and everything, a little over an hour. It's after one now. You won't get home till all hours. In 1979, when you could still afford, a single person could still afford to get a, an apartment in Manhattan. I don't know if that's still possible. 
And living in Manhattan, it was so convenient. You know, just like in the movie, you take a cab and then you're back home. You don't have to worry about going back to Brooklyn, where I originally come from. But of course, I couldn't afford to live on Central Park West or wherever they were living in, in the movie, you know, with a staircase that she comes down, you know, from a duplex apartment in Manhattan. No. This is my house, not a theater. In my house, you're a guest, not a director. Then stop being a star and stop treating your guests as your supporting cast. Now let's not get into a big hassle. It's about time we did. It's about time Margot realized that what's attractive on stage need not necessarily be attractive off. All right. And also, that's the one moment when Eve is sitting on the stairway that the true, her true feelings come through, where she talks about, you know, when they're saying, it's, is it worth all this effort just to get a good you know, role in the theater? And she says, oh, of course. And the, and the applause that you get and, and the magic of that. And then all of a sudden, she's startled. She realized she let her guard down at that moment. And I think that's probably where they got the idea to call the musical that they made back, uh, based on it, called Applause. Mm -hmm. I think Lauren Bacall was in it back in 1970. Why, if there's nothing else, there's applause. I've listened backstage to people applaud. It's like, like waves of love coming over the footlights and wrapping you up. Imagine to know every night that different hundreds of people love you. They smile, their eyes shine, you've pleased them. They want you, you belong. But you could see the beginnings of the fem you know, feminism in, in the way both Eve Harrington and Margot Chen stood up to male domination, especially uh, with the critics being only male. Addison DeWitt, you could say, depicts the, the male dominance over both Margot Channing and the Eve Harrington character. And you realize and you agree how completely you belong to me? Yes, Edison. Then take your nap and good luck for tonight. Women were also, you know, taken for granted and so were gay people and, and, and they were not treated as equals back then. So yeah, I guess there was some sort of subconscious identification. Mm -hmm. And the movie it sort of maybe appealed to me on that level, yeah? It's obvious you're not a woman. I've been aware of that for some time. Well, I am. I'll say. Don't be condescending. Come on, get up. I'll buy you a drink. I'll admit I may have seen better days, but I'm still not to be had for the price of a cocktail, like a salted peanut. I always look for, for people that had the strength to fight conventions. So as a gay person, I knew I had to fight the conventional attitude toward gay people and stuff. And that's why I guess I always identified with strong-willed people in the movies, regardless of whether they were standing up for uh, gayness or for their own way of life. Like even in All About Eve, I think the only obviously gay person is the piano player at her party. I'm talking like that, I'm playing the four times around you. Know. Leave us some. I just played it. Play it again. But that was the fourth straight time. Then this will be five. So it was, they, they were a stereotype back then. So any man that acted feminine, I remember watching, uh, I think, the Perry Como show, and there was a character called Paul Lind. Hi, Perry. You know, and he would deliberately play you know, a little fey character. Mm -hmm. And I remember my aunt 
teasing, uh, my mother teasing her sister, my aunt, who was still single. And my mother goes, oh, there's one for you, Angie, <laughs> meaning Paul Lynn, a gay man, you know, and they would laugh. I don't think that's funny. Of course it's funny. This is all too laughable to be anything else. You know what I feel about this, this age obsession of yours, and now this ridiculous attempt to whip yourself up into a jealous froth because I spent 10 minutes with a stage-struck kid. 20. 30 minutes, 40 minutes, what of it? Stage-struck kid. She's a young lady of qualities. And I'll have you know I'm fed up with both the young lady and her qualities. Yeah, I mean, I'm aging as well, you know, but I, thought, I think she was overly uh, reacting to it because she was 40, 40, you know. And she had to play a 20-year-old one. But she refused to give up on it. And Now, you could act. It's, the acting ability is one thing. But, yeah, if you're going to make a realistic presentation to the audience, they're going to see through that and, and say, what is she still doing there playing a 20-year-old? Cora, still a girl of 20. 20 is just not important. Don't you think it's about time it became important? How do you mean? Lloyd, I'm not 20-ish. I'm not 30-ish. Three months ago, I was 40 years old. 40. 4 Gay people, you know, one of the things they say about gay people, especially gay men, is we don't like to admit that we're aging, that we're still as attractive now as when we were 30 years old. So, but I mean, that's just such a big, broad generalization. Bill's in love with Margot Channing. He's fought with her, worked with her, and loved her. But 10 years from now, Margot Channing will have ceased to exist. And what's left will be what? Margot, Bill is all of eight years younger than you. And those years stretch as the years go on. I've seen it happen too often. Not to you, not to Bill. Isn't that what they always say? That's, that's the beauty of that character. She comes across as tough and bitchy at the beginning. Correct, yeah. And maybe she is also to, to, get, uh, to get ahead in this business. But she has a soft heart, and she takes Eve Harrington in believing her story. I learned to be tough sometimes to survive once I was out in the world, yes. Yes, both, both as a gay person and in, at work, you know. So, But yeah, and another line is at the end when uh, at the awards ceremony, after Eve Harrington gives that beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful, well-done speech, Margot Channing comes up and says, but I, I wouldn't, wouldn't worry about, about my heart, heart, Eve. You could, you could always, always put, put that, that award, award where your, where your heart, heart, ought heart ought to be. Ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then the other one is when, in the end, in New Haven, when uh, Addison, she, uh, Eve is trying to uh, you know, tell Addison that uh, uh, Celeste Holmes' husband really is going to leave her for, for him, for her, and he knows that that's a lot of baloney. So he says, your name, name is isn't Eve Harrington, Harrington. it's Gertrude Schlesinski. And she says, what of it? <laughs> it's true your parents were poor, and they still are. They would like to know how you are and where. They haven't heard from you for three years. What of it? They, there's that line where Addison DeWitt says to uh, the Marilyn Monroe character, she goes, oh, are Do there auditions, auditions in television? television? And he goes, that's, that's uh, all, television all television is. is, my dear, nothing but auditions. You know, I mean, all these clever, you know, witty, biting uh, uh, dialogue. Does my career mean nothing to you? Have you no human consideration? Show me a human and I might have. Bill. Keep watching it like I have and you'll, you'll see different aspects of it that you might have uh, not been aware of the, the previous times you viewed it. Tell me. 
What do you do in between the time Margot goes in and comes out? Just huddle in that doorway and wait? Oh, no. I see the play. You see the play? You've seen every performance of this play? Yes. And sometimes, you know, I speak too much about a movie while other people are watching it. But uh, on another time, I apologized ahead of time. I said, look, I might reach a, you know, a scene and, and say something. So my friend said, no, I like it better when you make a comment. So, you know, I have to be careful with who I'm watching it with, whether they'll accept the, uh, the comments or not during the movie. I hope you enjoyed listening to Paolo. And I'm sure there is a movie that you also know almost by heart that you use in your daily life as a way of channeling your emotion or as a way to communicate with your friends. Think about it. What would be yours? Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you.